Welcome to the Speak Pack Podcast, where high-performing speakers and the producers who hire them merge to give you the insider secrets to the lucrative speaking industry. Antonia Rose, your podcast host and celebrated speaker agent, unveils insider success strategies. Discover a nexus of thought leaders and bookers maximizing your potential in each and every episode. Your ticket to ultimate speaking success begins right here. Catch the transformative insights waiting for you on the Speak Packed podcast, hosted by the industry powerhouse herself, Antoniette Rose. Welcome, welcome. I'm super, super excited to bring to you a brilliant man who you are going to fall in love with just as much as I have once you get to hear his insights and what he what he brings to the table. Today we're speaking with Blaine Bartlett. He is a speaker and author of five books, um, including an international bestseller, Compassionate Capitalism. And I can't wait to dive into compassionate capitalism versus conscious capitalism, which we're a little bit more familiar with hearing. So we'll definitely be diving into that. His focus is the soul of business. And that's another thing I really want to dive into with Blaine. What what made him pull that out of all the different aspects of becoming a successful business person, right? What is it about the soul? So we're going to be diving into that. He actually has a podcast on the subject, and so I'll have him share that a bit as well. A very um, amazing podcast that I've been the privilege of being a guest on. And if you have not had the privilege to watch some of those episodes, make sure to do so because you will definitely be impacted in in important ways. Um, He's also keynoted around the globe. He's been featured in TV series such as the world's greatest motivators, and you're going to find out why that is pretty quickly. Um, And he also was in the movie and the book, Think and Grow Rich, The Legendary, The Legacy. Think and Grow Rich, The Legacy. Now, I'm I'm a follower of the original, so I didn't even know about the sequel. I would love to get my hands on that as well. Um, And you've done two TEDx TEDx Talks. And I know this is just the tip of the iceberg of the many accomplishments that you've had, just wanting to get your voice out there, your message out there, and your insights out there. What set you on this journey, Blaine, and why in the direction that you have taken it? Wow. Well, thank. first of all, thank you for being uh, such a wonderful host uh, and inviting me on this uh, um, platform. Uh, and also for being you know, just one of the best guests I've had on the podcast, uh, The Soul of Business, uh, in a long time. Uh, I, I, I loved our conversation. So just a shameless plug here, folks, you need to go listen to us. <laughs> we dance <Yes>. really well. <laughs> yes, we do. <laughs> so yeah, kind of what got me you know, moving in this direction? Uh, Antoinette, I mean, that, I mean, if it, that would take probably the better part of a whole episode to, to just you know, bundle that. But the short version is um, I got real enamored with the idea of the human potential way back in the ni- late 1960s, early 1970s. And uh, I was fortunate enough to uh, be in a circle where I was able to connect with some of the thought leaders, some of the people that were actually pioneers in that field, uh, that domain. 
um, you know, the folks that came out of the Stanford Research Institute, um, uh, SRI, you know, Tavistock out of, out of London. Um, <clears throat> you know, you know, one of my mentors was a contemporary of uh, Fritz Perls and uh, Carl Rogers you know, with uh, client-centered learning. Um, so you know, all of that is a backstory here. The, the idea of you know, the human potential has always intrigued me. And in the context of why do some people seem to succeed and why do some people not seem to succeed? Because it didn't seem to be a matter of intelligence. Smart people seem to fail just as frequently as dumb people, quote unquote, dumb people seem to succeed. Um, and I don't mean that in any pejorative sense at all, but you know, when you just kind of look at it, there didn't seem to be a common sense reason for why that was so. And then I started taking a look at just what's the consequence of that in the way that we run our businesses. And, um, you know, uh, capitalism, I mean, my, one of my majors in, in, at university was economics. And uh, there seemed to uh, be a, a, a fair amount of toxicity in the way that businesses uh, yeah, were run on the planet. And with the top, you know, top of the hat here to Milton Friedman, who said that you know, profit is the purpose of business. No, it's not. Yeah, it really isn't. Uh, we, we swallowed that canard hook, line, and sinker. And there's been some you know, very you know, unpleasant consequences as a, as a, as a uh, uh, function of that. For me, the purpose of business is to uplift the experience of being alive on the planet. Ooh, That's simple. Uplift, uplift the experience, experience of being alive. Of being alive on the planet. And if your product or service is doing that, you will not have a problem with profit because people want mm. to feel uplifted, which kind of moved into the whole notion of compassionate capitalism versus crony capitalism. Uh, and in between crony capitalism, compassionate capitalism was conscious capitalism. So, you know, you just touched on some some really, really important things, and I'm paralleling it, of course, as a speaker agent and as the host of Speak Pact, right, on everything that you said, how that relates, yes, to business, because speaking is a business when you're getting your voice out there. It, it, it should be handled like a business so that it's impactful at, on a maximum level and sustainable, because if you're not if it's not reciprocating, then you can only do it for so long, right? And I have seen exactly what you've said. I've I've been putting speakers on stages for going on three decades. And at first, as a novice, right, when I first started out, if somebody was brilliant, if, if they were an expert in uh, some sort of um, subject matter that I knew was of interest to my audience, I would put them on the stage. And a lot of times <laughs> their brilliance kind of made them fall flat as mm -hmm. a presenter because they weren't connecting. Right. And I suspect that when you talk about the soul, you somehow tapped into the fact that brilliance has to be connected to connection or relatability or translation somehow. So am I, yeah. am I getting close at all? And, and what made you make that? Mm -hmm. Go ahead. Yeah, you're, you're spot on with that. Yeah. At the end of the day, uh, you know, if I, if I, and I've asked this question of thousands of people, what's an organization or what's a business, what's an organization, how do you define it? And the typical answer I get is, you know, people with common goals, shared uh, purpose and that kind of stuff. All of that's all well and good, but at the end of the day, all any organization is, 
whether it's a family or an enormous uh, business uh, spanning you know, all kinds of countries, it's a collection of people that are in relationship. That's all an organization is. And the, the obvious tip of that iceberg, the relationship iceberg, is the interpersonal uh, relationships. That's the most visible. You know, my relationship with you, my relationship with my boss, my peers, that sort of thing. But we also have relationship with work process. We have relationship with goals and vision. We have relationship with values. We have relationship with literally everything and anything that comprises that organization. And why that becomes important, particularly from a leadership perspective, is that to the degree the relationships are working well, you've got a pretty good shot at being successful. You've got a pretty good shot at delivering that service or product that is uplifting the human experience. But if the relationships in all their varied forms, if any one of them starts to go off track, that mission of delivering that product or service that uplifts humanity, uplifts life on the planet, gets polluted. It gets compromised because the relationship takes it off. You know, that the, the perturbed re- relationship takes it off track. And most people don't have a clue how to curate high-quality relationships. They just organically emerge and they think it's magical. No, it takes work. It really takes an intentionality. And that's a a large part of the work that I do is how do you actually understand, first of all, the impact, and the impact is the perfect word for this, the impact of of a relationship gone bad, as well as the impact of a working, holistic, relational environment system where it's all hitting on all cylinders. If, if, if we can understand those distinctions, then we can move towards how do I have more of that and less of that? Uh, and that becomes yeah, a basic conversation. It, it's not rocket science, but if it was easy, everybody'd do it. Well, you just dispelled that whole misnomer in my book that your business life is somehow separate from your personal life. I have never heard it communicated the way you just communicated it. And that is brilliant. I kind of want to soak into it. It's like, bye, Blaine. I'm going to go soak into what you, <laughs> what you just said. Yeah, I know you have so much more to bring us today. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to hang around. Um, but I really do want to soak into that even for myself. Because not only did uh, did you communicate, if I'm, if I'm following the track the correct way, that an organization is really just a set of relationships. And we're talking interpersonal, right? Um, Personal, human-to-human relationships. But the way that you said it's also a relationship with things like maybe your time management, your project management, that, that the concept that those things that you commit to become a relationship. And when that relationship breaks down, then... Not just you know, not just the relationship with a person. I mean, al- always that's that's very easy to feel when that relationship starts breaking mm-hmm. down. But when you're just thinking, "Gosh, I just can't keep all these balls in the air," and these projects are just kind of falling flat, it's not because the project fell flat. It's because the relationship, relationship. your relationship with that project, Absolutely. fell flat. Can you dive into that just a little bit deeper? Because that's that's amazing information, amazing insight right there. Great story that illustrates this, I think. I was working with a client a number of years ago, a woman CEO, startup organization that had gotten over the revenue hump. They were now revenue positive and they were they were actually doing really well. 
And I was working with her and four of her executives. And we were having this you know, conversation and this this notion of relationship came up in the meeting. And I you know, made an offhand remark about you know, relationship with everything, including the chairs that we're sitting in. And one of the uh, uh, women in the group, uh, who I think was their chief marketing officer, said, I hate my chair. And <laughs> the CEO went, what? And she says, I hate my chair. And so the, you know, the long, you know, the short story or the short version of the story is when they were a startup, they bought used furniture, they brought it in, they, and they had never upgraded anything you know, to speak of. So everybody's chairs and desks and everything else were kind of second and in some cases third hand. So uh, my client, the CEO, said, well, go get a new chair. And as soon as she said that, the other you know, three women in the group, you know, it was a team of four women, the other three women in the group said, I hate my chair too. <laughs> and it was kind of like, oh, okay. So she, you know, she, basically the CEO said, everybody go get new chairs. If it's that big a deal to you, go get new chairs. Now, I, I'm elaborating on it a little bit, but when I came back about six months later, I walked in the office building, I walked in their, in their area, and it was palpably different. It felt different. There was a different kind of a buzz going on. And when I went into the uh, CEO's office, sat down with her and said, what's going on here? I mean, something's different. What have, what have you been doing? What have you been up to? And she said, nothing. She said, it's been business as usual. I mean, we've been, you know, we've been hitting our targets. You know, the KPIs are, you know, all, all the traditional business talk. And she said, I, I don't know what you're talking about. I said, something is fundamentally different. It just feels different. And she said, and there was a little, little light bulb that kind of went off. She said, well, we, we got everybody new chairs and desks. And I went, interesting. Now, here's where this goes to. Most of these people didn't know that their relation, and, and most of them had bad relationships with their chairs. They were sitting sideways, it was lumpy, it was whatever it was. But most of this discomfort was out of awareness. And the, the whole notion of energy will follow intention. It doesn't follow attention. So we were paying attention to our goals, our objectives, but the intention was to get comfortable as I'm sitting in my chair. It was subliminal. It was out of sight, out of mind. The relationship I had with my chair did not work well. And as a consequence, my creative energy was being hijacked. Now, that's, I mean, this is me elaborating a little bit on this whole story. But essentially what she did was paid attention to and gave permission for people to fix a relationship that they didn't know was broken. And as soon as they got it fixed, things shifted. And it served as a, and, and, and they, they, they use that story internally in that company now. And they've used it as a teaching point. Uh, to say, you know, just notice we've got relationship with everything here. We've got relationships not only with our uh, suppliers, but our supply line. Pay attention to where the where the niggle is. Pay attention to where it's you know, kind of uncomfortable. Where's that lump or where's that spring sticking up? <laughs> you know, that sort of thing. So, you know, something, something so, oh, go ahead. You no, go ahead. Say, those, those relationships tend to be the important ones. It's the aggregation of all these little tiny relationships that end up basically developing the culture of the organization. 
I guess if we could get this one key, there'd be some tremendous changes, not only in our businesses, but also maybe even within our homes. What are some keys, Blaine, that we can glean from, like, how do we take notice? How do we notice things we don't even realize are there to to be able to see that this is an area that I'm fall I have fallen out of relationship with, and it's actually affecting things. I, I, I can main, I can name one one little thing I know is me, but I'm only realizing as you're saying this that it's probably taken a toll. It's probably taking making an effect in me that I didn't even realize. So we we have three very large dogs, Great Pyrenees. And big one dogs. just had some puppies. Yes, very big dogs. One just had some puppies. So to treat her a little bit, well, and she hurt her leg. So to treat her a little bit well, we let her in the house. These are very outdoor dogs. They're livestock guardian dogs, right? They're not indoor dogs. And they shed like crazy. And so even, yeah, I wear black socks. <laughs> black <laughs> socks are like white hair. And um, it's just kind of driving me a little crazy, but I understand she's our little angel. We're going to, you know, keep her in the house. Um, but it's just been kind of bothering me a little mm-hmm. bit. I haven't really said anything. There's nothing. It's such a minor little nothing thing. You know, yeah. we're going to sweep it up, but it's harder to keep up with. I'm just wondering if like, if I were to tune in and realize, okay, that's actually, I'm falling out of relationship with my floors right now. I'm not loving my yeah. floors. Maybe I need to put a little bit more energy into getting it to where I want it to be. And then that would help other areas? Is Mm -hmm. that what you're saying? It does, because every time you notice, and usually the noticing is subliminal, it's out of awareness, out of conscious awareness, I should say. But there's a little energy packet that's attached to that noticing that isn't available to be uh, producing something else that I say I'd like to have. And we're, we're in the new year here. Yeah, and you know, people have set New Year's resolutions as an example. But what they do is they set these things as um, as objectives that are out there someplace, but they don't necessarily look at the habituated ways that they actually live their lives. And resolutions don't do anything about habits, and habits mm-hmm. are oftentimes rooted in that unconscious noticing. Yeah. That yeah yeah there's a research there's a number of different research papers here but one that I cite often is the um, uh, unbearable automaticity of being, um, which is a very interesting uh, study. But it basically illustrates that only five percent when we set goals and objectives in our lives, only five percent of our behaviors are consciously directed in service of those goals and objectives. Ninety five percent of what we end up doing, how we think, how we feel is in a subliminal state. It's, it's in a subconscious state that you colloquially we call the mindset. It's, it's, yeah, it's, it's our mindset. And mindset is not visible typically except in behavior. That's how I know somebody's mindset is I observe their behavior. I don't, I don't pay attention to what they say. I observe their behavior. That gives me a pretty good clue about how they organize their world. And how they organize their world in here shows up out there. Oh, gosh, I'm seeing so many ways that how how important, if we could just get this, how important it could be. Can you speak directly to SpeakPact's audience, our mm-hmm. audience here? Mm-hmm. And um, 
maybe use an analogy of getting up on a stage and being in relationship maybe with that room and the audience that they're speaking to over and above in relationship with their PowerPoint or you know, <laughs> the, the, the agenda or the message that they want to get out, but more in relationship with why they're really there. Yeah. And I, I, I would love to hear that put into words by you. The, when I give a keynote as an example, uh, I'll go to the room, you know, usually the evening before, and I, I'll literally walk around the room and you know, if somebody watched me, they would think I was crazy because I'm talking to the walls sometimes. I mean, I literally will talk to the walls. What have you heard going on in here? You know, kind of what's, what's your space? Oh, hell? Wow. There's, there's, there's a, there's an old, um, um, uh, it's not Hindi. It's, uh, uh, <laughs> my brain just went dead. Sanskrit, Sanskrit word, uh, called Rasa, R-A-S-A. And rasa basically is the embodiment of something. And this is where the soul of business comes in. Everything has a rasa to it. It's got an energetic feel to it. And it's a consequence of what it's been around. What's, you know, kind of the, the, the steeping that has occurred. Now, whether you buy this or not from an intellectual perspective, you walk into a building and you feel something. You feel the rasa, not only of the building, but also of everything that's going on inside in that building from the, from the company uh, from the company's perspective. So, I, I the first thing I do is I want to get a feel for the rasa, you know, kind of what's gone on in here. How do I position myself in this space? Because the audience is positioning themselves in that space as well. And and, and this is, I mean, this is almost pro forma you know, at this point in time. I want to know who the audience is, so. Uh, I'll have done some homework before that, you know, kind of what are we paying attention to? What's important here? What's the takeaways? Those sorts of things. But before the the, the program begins, you know, I, I'll go out in the eddy room. I'll go out in the foyer and I'll just, you know, meet people. They don't know who I am. Uh, and so I'll just talk to them a little bit. But, you know, what are your expectations here? You know, what do you heard about this guy? Um, <laughs> that kind of stuff. Just to kind of get a sense of what they're listening for. Because what they're listening for, I can always position my content to match what they're listening for. And that you know, takes me away from a reliance on the PowerPoint deck or anything else. I can speak to the listening. And then that, yeah, that kind of sets things up for me. Um, and then I'll you know, usually pick two or three people in the audience. Uh, you know, they don't know this, but, you know, usually it's somebody that I've you know, spoken with already that I can kind of connect with. I mean, I'll you know, visually connect with them. I'll speak directly to them as if they were representative of the entire whole. Um, you know, that sort of thing. I mean, these are you know, just speaker, you know, specific sorts of things that you do, but, um, well, I, I hope people are, have a pen and paper. I've already taken three pages of notes. So I really hope that they do, because this is, you're brilliant and you brilliantly connect. That was something that really attracted to me, me to you in the very beginning there. That's these little insights, right? They may, they may sound little, but they're massive when it becomes, when it comes to setting yourself apart as a speaker from a speaker to a brilliant thought leader who people are going to want to follow and reach out to. That's the difference. And I love how you said, speak to the listening, speak to the listening. Mm -hmm. I just, I know you spent a little time here. I'd like to just spend another yeah. 30 seconds or so and have you go a little bit deeper there. 
The you know there there's a business objective, and I'll put this in a business meeting you know, pr- presentation sort of a thing. But there's always a business objective that the uh, sponsor wants to you know make sure it gets landed. That's one piece, but it's almost never the real thing that people want to hear. And I say hear in the sense of uh, what they feel as they're as they're being touched or as, as they're being spoken spoken to. Um, and there's a difference between being spoken to and being spoken at. And that's that's a distinction that is really kind of important to understand. So you know that little um, you know, the Japanese have a term for it. They call it nemowashi, the meeting before the meeting. So I'm meeting out in the foyer, you know, kind of the meeting before the meeting, kind of you know, socializing a little bit here. What's really you know being paid attention to here? Yeah, is there stuff in the water, so to speak, or in the air that I don't know about because it wasn't part of the formal research that I did or the due diligence that I did beforehand? So if I can kind of get a sense that the, you know this is kind of going on, it's it's subliminal in the uh, in the current of the uh, the audience mix. I can kind of if I don't speak directly to it, I can kind of uh, energetically match it. Like if there's you know uh, concern about uh, an upcoming quarterly report, you know that that fear energy or whatever it might be is kind of going to be there. So I want to be able to acknowledge its presence. Um, and then maybe not address it directly, but you know, kind of you know, make some jokes about you know the fear of the unknown. You know, we're gonna we're gonna take a little journey here on this stage. You know, you're gonna be with me for the next uh, you know two hours or the next hour, whatever it is. You don't know where you're going. That's got to be a little bit frightening. You've got a little bit unsettling. So so I, I just kind of um, it has. It's not part of the formal presentation, but it's a way that I kind of let. You know, I'm with you. I. Uh, uh, and I want you to know that uh, I've heard you, uh, that sort of thing, even though we haven't f- formally spoken. Um, so that gets into play you know, pretty early on. Um, and then I, this another- is revolutionary for speakers, I think. And I don't want to gloss over this one part um, because all of us as speakers, right? Uh, it doesn't matter how seasoned you are. We get those little bit of jitters right before mm-hmm. getting on the stage, especially, you know, the bigger the audience. But sometimes even the smaller, more intimate audiences can be even a little bit more intimidating because <laughs> there's nowhere to hide. Exactly. Right. The lights won't hide you. Um, but actually not trying to shove down that fear or those jitters, mm-hmm. but come into relationship with the fear and the jitters. Yeah. That was pretty profound right there. And I did not want to, I didn't yeah. want it to be lost in all these other brilliant things, uh, gems that you're, you're dropping. So, so I'm assuming to come into a relationship with that, it's basically acknowledging it. Like what would you do? There's, a, I, I, I do a program for the American Association of Physician Leadership. Um, and the, the program is, is uh, the, the title of it is Leadership Authenticity. And very early on, and, and I'll do this you know, a couple of times a year for them, uh, it's, it's a, a two-day program, uh, which is neither here nor there, but here's where I want to go with this. It's, it has to do with the question of authenticity. When I first developed the program and started working with it, I, you know, how do I define authenticity? You know, how is, how do, you know, what is that word? Because if I'm going to use it as a title, people better understand what I'm talking about. But before that, I better understand what I'm talking about. So, you know, when I looked at Kierkegaard, I mean, I looked at all the philosophers and I basically, when I was said and done, I came up with a definition for authenticity that seemed to hold water. And it was simply this, authenticity is what we're left with when I stop trying to manage your perception of me. 
And when I stop trying to manage your perception of me, what I'm left with is basically an open, vulnerable uh, access. And some of the best, you know, one of the best speakers I ever, 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 ever worked with, uh, dear, 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 dear friend of mine, Bob Proctor. Uh, uh, yes. Yeah, Bob was probably one of, well, not probably, he was you know, the most authentic uh, man I'd ever met. He was, I mean, he, he didn't try to manage my perception of him. He just showed up and this is what you get. And it was what you got, whether he was on a platform, whether we were sitting down having dinner together, whether uh, he and his son and I were on my fishing boat, I mean, wherever. Yeah, authenticity. It's don't manage, you know, don't try to manage your perception of me. Let it just be what it is. Now that's challenging because it requires an incredible amount of self-confidence to be that vulnerable. And you can feel when you're, you can feel in yourself when you're being authentic or you're trying to win over the favor of somebody. Yeah. And you can also feel the reverse, right? When somebody's just look, this is this is what I who I am. This is what I bring to the table. I hope I hope it's great for you. But if it's not, this is who I am. This is what I bring to the table, yeah. right? And so often we try to I don't know reset the table mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> to 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 suit the meal. I guess um, if we're going to play with that analogy, how do you get to that point? And because I've seen people be able to really exude right that that sense of this is who I am even in a humble and kind of shy way maybe they weren't extroverts or super confident but they somehow got that piece where I'm not going to try to impress you this Mm -hmm. is just uh, the insights I have uh, the value I bring whatever it is right this is what I have to offer Um, and I'm not going to try to pretty it up at all. How how do you get to that place? For me, uh, it was a journey uh, and practice was involved with it. But more importantly, it was uh, actually beginning to really appreciate and pay attention to, I'm just a vehicle. I mean, this thing that I call Blaine Bartlett, that anybody calls Blaine Bartlett, um, is, is it's a vehicle for a spirit that moves to and through me. It uses me. And I don't mean this in a religious sense. And I want to be very clear about that. You know, Carl Jung uh, and in the ancient Greeks, both you know, spoke about the spirit being that that aspect of livingness that animates reality. Mm. That aspect of livingness that animates reality, and it has its way of you know, using different forms to articulate and to express that the perfection of 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 that of that force. Yeah. You know, I've got you know, fir trees and uh, cedar trees out in front of me here, the water. There's a, there's a force that is expressed in those trees, and it's beautiful. It doesn't try to manage my perception of it. It just shows up. So when I'm speaking, as an example, or when I'm, you know, when I'm with my wife, my grandkids, wherever, and this is where Bob is really, truly masterful, um, I recognize that I'm just this vehicle here. So why would I want to manipulate the way that spirit is going to be expressing itself? I've got, yeah, you know, I've got knowledge. I've got intent. I've got uh, yeah, physical mannerisms and all that stuff, but I'm, I'm making the assumption that um, spirit chose this vehicle to express its way itself in a very unique way. 
there's, I mean, statistically, there's never, ever, ever in the history of the universe going to be somebody like me. <laughs> and I say that with all hubris. <laughs> Uh, and that's it's cool. so true, Everybody. and I love that you know that, right? It's it's endearing when somebody knows that, and they're really not trying to manipulate how you think about them. Yeah, it's easy to slip into that. Yeah, but I guess it's again that relationship with yourself, even it's my the relationship um, I have with what I call spirit. And again, this is not in a religious conversation at all. It's just I do know that there's a spirit that moves to and through the universe, and uh, it's. Yeah, you know, Carl Jung, well, not Carl Jung, uh, Max Planck, who was you know, the father of uh, quantum physics, essentially said, we can get behind everything. And this is a kind of a reductionist conversation. Uh, we can get behind an atom and you'll find electrons and protons and you can, you, know, you can keep getting smaller and smaller. He said, there's a point where we get to where you can't get behind consciousness. Mm. You can get behind anything except consciousness. Consciousness is the most... Well, consciousness is the first cause. Uh, so, yeah, I, I am consciousness being expressed in physical form, as are you, as are all of the you know, listeners to this right now. Yeah, uh, you know, uh, I'm going to go down a metaphysical track here, if you'll give me just license for just a moment. Um, you bet. Each of us, e every human being on this planet starts out as an idea. Yeah. yeah whether it's a conscious idea or not, but yeah, there's an idea and then when we pop out, uh, there's, there's a physical uh, manifestation of what was just an idea. Then that idea starts to get formed. It gets formed early on by you know, family, by you know, culture, by, you know, so it gets molded. But that spirit that, you know, that is unique to that idea is still there. So I think part of the growth process, part of the maturation process for the human species is to begin to tap back into that source that gives expression through the uniqueness of every aspect of life that we see on this planet. And that, that kind of goes back to the whole notion of why compassionate capitalism. Everything's connected. And if I'm, you know, if I'm organizing around this notion of connection, it's a relational dance. I begin to honor it in a very specific way. And I use the word honor very specifically there. It's an honoring. You just, you just gave the best definition of branding or brand that I've honestly ever heard. Again, I'm going to so soak into this. I'm going to be audience people, my speak pack people. I hope that you guys listen to this particular interview more than once. Is there, so, uh, there's a lot of depth here and it's not going to be caught in just one listening. As a speaker, if you do not identify, if you don't embrace that you are unique, you are individual, you are the only one who can deliver your message in the way that you deliver it and, and create those relationships in the way that you create it, right? Those connections. I think if we can all grasp just the last three minutes of what you said, <laughs> then we can embrace our own brand, right? We we started out as an idea. Let's hope it was a pretty darn good idea. And if it's if it's an intelligent creator, it would have been a pretty good good idea, right? Yeah. So none of us are a bad idea. And as we grow, we create ideas of our own mm -hmm. and want to communicate those and connect with our audience to make to hopefully to make a bigger 
better world, yeah, yeah. right? To, 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 to make some, some positive differences. I think that it all boils down to why do some speakers get these amazing stages and these amazing followings and others can be just as brilliant like you, we started out talking, but they just, they're on the struggle bus. They're just on that struggle bus and can't seem to get off. Mm-hmm. What's the key difference? I think that if we can really grasp, grasp these concepts that you've laid out on the table today, that's it. That's the, I'm going to, I hope you'll let me have you back because this is just the tip of the iceberg, but that's it. We create a unique, authentic being by, by being in relationship with Mm -hmm. our unique, authentic being, and then deliver our message from that, right? Not from some false press. Absolutely. Some, some false way that we think we need to do it, right? That's why trying to follow other people's frameworks rarely ever work because you're fitting yourself into, uh, the wrong size shoe. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's an old aphorism, um, in in Buddhist philosophy. If you meet the Buddha on the road, kill him. Uh, because (laughs) essentially what it's (laughs) referring to is you're following in the path of somebody that's gone before, but that path was that person's path. You've got your own Mm -hmm. unique path. If you kill the Buddha that you find on the path that you're walking, you're not left with anything except your own path to walk now. So, yeah, and it's going to get brambly. <laughs> you're going to have to yeah. discover it. The, the, well, you've fashioned a pretty incredible brand for yourself. Oh, you go ahead. I just want you to stay on that that lane. You yeah, go for no, it. <laughs> just the idea of uniqueness. Yeah, like you mentioned on the on the introduction, I've written five books. The very first book I wrote, it was kind of like, who in the heck is going to read this thing? You know, because, yeah, why... I've got nothing to say that you, you knew, uh, but the, uh, the, the, uh, writing coach that I was working with going, yeah, basically said, nobody will write it like you do. You may say exactly the same thing as four writers before you have, but you're going to say it in a way that nobody else has. And you'll put the things together in a way that nobody else did. And as a consequence of that, you will hit a different audience. And, that's, I think, why some people end up on stages and other people don't end up on those same stages is it's, it, it in, in part has to do with the, the crafting of the message so that there's a resonance with that particular audience, if you will, or that particular, I mean, yeah, I, I, I would not speak well necessarily or be as receptive, as well, as well received as I would like to think that I would be. Um, yeah, speaking to a group of campfire girls. <laughs> just, <laughs> I mean, just because that's not the way that I pos- you know, put things together. Now, could I do that? Yeah, I, I you know, <laughs> I've got granddaughters. I could probably do that. But uh, that's not going to be the sweet spot for me. And I, I think, you know, when we begin to identify really kind of what's that uniqueness and how do I posi- you know, position my messaging in alignment with that uniqueness, that's where we find the stages that we belong on. And that's when you become a sought after speaker, right? There are a million, at minimum, <laughs> speakers and presenters and even experts on business leadership, on business mm-hmm. success, right? Why blame Bartlett? And it's because you connect. It's just like wherever you go, Blaine, I'm going to tune in because I've already gleaned so much from the way that you deliver your information. And I think that's really important for any speaker out there. Don't try to follow 
the Buddha, right? Don't try mm-hmm. to follow somebody else, some other guru, some other. So I, I actually circled the mountain for about seven years, if not longer. Yeah. Buying into very high level programs, trying to dance to this person's dance and dance to this person's dance. It just wasn't happening. And when I finally decided, you know what, I'm putting it all, I'm going to cut my losses, put it all aside. What is it that I want to accomplish? How do I want to get my message out there? What difference do I want to make? Boom, my company exploded. I'm just like, Golly, I wish I would have known that <laughs> years ago. But I think the same is for speakers, right? Yeah. You just like applying, 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 trying to break in. You get this one gig and it just doesn't really turn out to, to result in, in premium clients or, or other speaking engagements. But once you hit on you and you hit that chord and you know how to connect with your audience, yeah. that's where it really begins happening. And you've you've got you really have a bead there. I don't know where, where you got it, where, where along the way you figured this out, Blaine, but you really have <clears throat> established a path, not just for you, because obviously you've made it. Look at these places that have, have had you in their space, and there's reason for that, but also to pass that torch to us as we're getting our voices and our messages out there. Um, and I love that it's not like, hey, this is Blaine, follow me. It's more hey, look, get into a relationship, get into right, right relationship with yeah. yourself. How does compassionate capitalism even relate to that, especially with regards to a speaker versus conscious capitalism? <laughs> That's a great question. Um, conscious capitalism, uh, you know, the movement uh, was basically generated after uh, Raj Sisodi and John Mackey uh, wrote a book called Conscious Capitalism. And John was the co-founder of uh, Whole Foods. And Raj was a, a professor at Babson University, professor of business. And they're both very good friends of mine. And I was talking with them, you know, not too long after the book came out. And I remember, you know, sitting down with, you know, with John at dinner uh, in Santa Monica you know, one evening. And I said, there's something that that's missing for me here. Um, because what you talk about in the book is <clears throat> consciousness being aware of the fact that there's a, a, an eco environment. There's a there's a there's a whole environment outside of just the shareholder group or the direct customer relationship that businesses that organizations need and literally need to pay attention to, you know, specifically in terms of recognizing their existence. But in the book, you don't really describe much around the behavioral analog to that conscious awareness of the fact that there's other groups out there. And when I say behavioral analog, it it really is about how do I behave as a consequence of knowing that we're actually connected here. So compassion, when we look at compassion as a word, um, it's impossible to have the experience of compassion without recognizing, without having the experience of connection, the experience, not the recognition of, but the experience of connection. And in the most starkest of terms, there's nobody out there but me. So I'm continuously dealing with aspects of myself. So how I am treating you is basically a foreshadowing of how I'm treating myself. So 
that's an altruistic way of thinking about things and that sort of thing, but it has a way to translate itself into business. And this is where compassionate capitalism came into play here. Uh, how do people feel about themselves when they walk away from the interaction that they had with me? Do they feel uplifted? My role as a business person, my role as a business leader, my role as a clerk on the floor is to find a way to have that person feel uplifted because they are a part of me. They are a part of our business. There's nothing that is not connected on this planet. Now, where this translates is in the way that we make business decisions. Instead of just making a decision for a quarterly profit, we start making decisions with a recognition that there's a ripple. And those ripples have consequences. And those consequences show up in some very fundamental ways in terms of quality of life, in terms of uh, health and well-being. In I mean, so you just kind of fill in the blanks. For me, and this is just my own bias, business is the most pervasive and powerful force on the planet today. There is nothing that is not touched by the activity of business. And if I had a magic wand, I would require every business owner and every business leader to actually sign a Hippocratic Oath of sorts. First, do no harm. Now, mm -hmm. Google tried that at the beginning, uh, but they've gotten away from it uh, to a significant degree, I think. But that whole notion of first, do no harm, it forces me to think about things in a different way. And I may end up making a decision that uh, will cost me a little bit more money, but it will have a return on investment that is significantly different. And on, honestly, Antoinette, you know, where, where I came up with a lot of this, I grew up on a farm. And uh, I'll just kind of go down a rabbit hole real quick here. Grew up on a farm, and I used to walk the farm all the time. I mean, I, it was just out in nature a lot. And one of the things that I, you know, in, in retrospect started, you know, noticing was that everything seemed connected. I mean, it, the seasons, you know, this was up in the northwest of the United States. Everything was connected. You know, even when in winter the ground, you know, was barren, there was a lot of stuff going on underneath. And it would show up in spring. And the point here is that there is nothing in nature that serves as a center of accumulation. Everything in nature serves as a center of distribution in one way or another. And the default for most businesses is to find ways to accumulate as much profit as possible, as much market share as possible. And it's the accumulation that gets us in trouble. So, and it's a, and it's, and it's a consequence of feeling separate from, divorced from the consequences of our decisions and actions. Now, that's my soapbox. <laughs> and I apologize for it, but there was a lot of gold there. Thank you for going down that, that direction. It's, it's an important concept to hold on to. Good. Well, thank you for allowing the time. Well, so there's a big difference between just recognizing connection yeah. and number one, experiencing connection, not just you connecting with your audience, but also having them not just connect with you, but also connect with each other. Yep. One thing that I always train my trainers, right? One thing I always train my experts or, or try to convey to my experts who really want to take their speaking careers to the next level is that within the first few minutes of getting in front of any group of people, you're, you really have to 
you you have to establish connection and community that people feel like, okay, I'm in the right place. I'm with the right people. I'm listening to the right person. I'm, I'm here. I'm all in. If you don't, they're going to be checking their phones yep. and, and, and it's going to be harder and harder to establish that connection. And you've just given some dynamite things to, to get into our psyches. If we could just get these concepts and practice them, create experiences, not only for ourselves, for our audience, but, but for our audience to our audience, maybe even our audience to the room, to the experience that they're having, then you've got it, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. You, you, you got a pretty good leg up. I'll tell you that. Yeah. Well, before we close today, can you give, not that you haven't already given us a tremendous amount, but when it comes to the duty, basically the duty of connecting and getting your message out there and getting your solutions into the minds and ears of those who want to receive it and especially want to receive it from you because on some level you are the the type right the person that they can receive information from how, what would you say to that how how can we go about making that pact to make the impact not as a duty as far as something to check off in your life or you know a, a means to an end but more to that that very compassionate capitalism that you're speaking to? That's a great question. Um, I'll answer it this way. Um, Earl Nightingale years ago was asked, how do you define success? And he said, it's basically the uh, pursuit of a worthy ideal. Now that worthy ideal isn't defined by somebody else for me. It's something that I just define for myself. So from the, the vantage point of being an effective, impactful speaker, what's the worthy ideal that I'm trying to convey? And how do I position it? How do I package it in a way that it's consumable, that it actually resonates in a, in, and it resonates in a way that touches somebody else's worthy ideal? So there's this, you know, that connection, that synchronicity, that, uh, 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 falling domino sort of a you know, thing that begins to occur and starting out and even, you know, hell, I, I, this is still true for me. Um, sustainable success is, is something that is hard to achieve. Yeah. You know, how do I sustain success in doing this over time? Sustainable success has to do with developing, and this is for the speakers, developing the capacity to continuously start over. In the, yeah, in the middle of a talk, if I if I notice that something is going sideways, if I don't have the capacity, in this case, it would be the vulnerability to say, you know, I think I'm missing something here. Let me go this direction. You guys okay with that? And I mean, just being able to call that out, developing the capacity to continuously start over in service of a worthy ideal. If I can marry that and actually pay attention to it as my guiding light, my North Star, I think I'm going to be fine. Golden. Golden. So somewhere along the line, Blaine, you had to have made a pact with yourself to get this and to get your voice out there. Five books. That's not easy, right? If anybody's attempted one book, they know that it takes a lot of discipline. And discipline comes from a pact, right, that you make with yourself. 
What's the trigger somewhere along the line where you're, that where you decided I'm going to get I'm going to get my message out there. I'm going to help people. What's that like inner pact that you wound up making that can benefit the audience who might not be as far down the line quite yet? Uh, it's actually fairly personal in the sense that uh, it goes back uh, 20 some odd years uh, when my wife died. Mm. And prior to that, I wasn't doing speaking. I would I was doing corporate consulting and education work in large organizations and that sort of thing. Uh, and when you know, you know Pam had uh, a long bout with cancer, uh, multiple myeloma, and one of the promises I made to myself, yeah, you know, after she had passed, was that I was not going to let this idea of me. Uh, take the shell that it has been. There's more that needs to be expressed. And, and I do remember where I was when I was you know, walking by myself on the seashore. And it was just this, okay, there, there's an idea here. There's a, there's a spirit that needs to be expressed. It's not being expressed in the current way that I'm working. So how can I, how can I get a voice out there in a much larger way? And that's when I started writing the books and, uh, started moving into a different arena. Wow. Uh, what a way to honor your beautiful wife, right? What a way to honor her life. And she lives on in yeah. all of that work. That is, uh, I did not expect that answer. So thank you for being so vulnerable and sharing us, <laughs> yeah. sharing with us that. So essentially, we <clears throat> we hook on to something that's deeply important to us mm-hmm. and make a commitment. Yeah. That's yeah, what it and- sounds like you said. In, in the, oh, hands up in the air again here. Commitment. <laughs> people don't understand what commitment is. Most people, when they make commitments, they make commitments to something that's outside of themselves. But again, this is the nature of a year's resolution. By the end of the year, I'm going to have X numbers of dollars in my bank account. It's out there someplace in both space and time. In order for a commitment to actually work, I mean, really work, it has to live in here. I'm not committed to something. I am a commitment. And it's mm. that, that statement of I am that anchors it. And then it becomes an expression. Then, then it's just a question of how do I express that I am-ness using the faculties that I've been given. I am a commitment. But the first book I wrote took me three and a half, almost four years to write. It was painful. <laughs> and... I started playing with this notion of commitment. In the last book I wrote, this one over my shoulder here, you know, the uh, Leadership Mindset uh, Weekly, uh, I wrote that uh, during COVID in, in two and a half months. And, and wow. I had a ball with it. It was not hard. It was a hoot. And it was kind of like, you know, I am a commitment. I am a commitment to this book. And that's how I worked it. I am a commitment. To, to having this book you know, be present. What what a solid what a solid way to end this segment. And I do hope you'll let me interview you again because I, I there's just so much depth that we can still go into. But what a difference! I'm not committed to something. I am the commitment. Yeah. When you own it on that level, everything works. Right. towards that journey, yeah. right? Everything works towards getting that book done. Yep. 
getting your voice out there despite your jitters, whatever it might be, I am the commitment. Ooh, I'm going to be, I have a lot to meditate on. Thank you, Blaine. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, sleepless nights. And thank you so much. (laughs) Or or dream-filled nights. Exactly. (laughs) Thank you so much for being our guest. You have just given this audience tremendous uh, leg up, a tremendous leg up on their careers as thought leaders, influencers, speakers, authors, getting those solutions into the hearts, minds, psyches of those who are hungry for it, who lay up awake at night, wondering what that that thing is. If they could just get it, they could really go go to the next level. Yeah. It doesn't matter what level you're at. You can be a very well-known thought leader, and there's always a next level, always. right? There's always those calibrations. Yep. And I think you just gave us some really important keys to that. So thank you very much. My pleasure. Absolutely. Thank you for the opportunity. How can my audience get a hold of you? I know they're going to oh. want your books. I know they're going to want to <laughs> hear your podcast. Let us know how we can get in touch with you. Uh, BlaineBartlett.com is my personal website avatarresources.com is my company website, uh, which is where compassionate capitalism kind of resides. Um, the podcast, the soul of business with Blaine Bartlett. There's a, there's, I think two other soul of business podcasts out there in addition to mine, but mine is the soul of business with Blaine Bartlett. (laughs) And Blaine is B L A I N E and Bartlett B A R L E T T B A R T like the pair. B-A-R-T-L-E-T-T? T-T. Yes. Okay. So we've got that. Blaine Bartlett. And I love your name. Thank you. (laughs) Talk about unique. (laughs) It it fits you. All right, Blaine. Well, thank you very much. I'll make sure to put all of that information in our show notes because I know that this audience, if I, I want to make a pact with my audience to look up Blaine Bartlett in all the different areas that you can get his books because your speaking career will evolve if you do that. All right. Ciao, ciao for now. Thanks, Antoinette. Take care. Thank you for listening to the Speak Pact podcast. To become a recommended speaker of Antoniet's WPC Speaker Agency, or you are a host or planner looking for a dynamic expert in optimized performance, Antoniet would like to personally meet with you. Secure a time with her at speakerbooker.com. Again, that is speakerbooker.com. It all begins with a vision, a voice, and a pact to impact. Join the Speak Pact movement by joining our new private Facebook group at the link in our show notes. Find us on nearly every social media platform at One Antoniet. That's number one. A-N-T-O-N-I-E-T-T-E, or simply hashtag SpeakPact.